I'm Joe Beachboard. And I'm Dennis Davis. And this is Workplace Strategies Update. Joining us for Workplace Strategies Update, we have a very special guest. Cheryl Stanton is the immediate past administrator of the Wage and Hour Division at the U.S. Department of Labor. She's joining us from uh, D.C. Welcome, Cheryl. Hey, Cheryl. Hi. Thanks for having me. You know, Cheryl, in addition to being a shareholder at Ogletree Deacons for many years, you've had some very interesting roles throughout your career, both prior to and following your years of practice at Ogletree Deacons. For instance, you clerked for Justice Alito, albeit before he was a member of the Supreme Court. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing experience. Um, it was a tough situation to walk into because, as many of you know now, we knew going in how smart he was. Um, but he was also very, very quiet. And so you often felt like you were sitting there and you would, for someone like me who's an extrovert, I would say a lot of things and I would stumble over myself to fill dead air. And over time what you realized was he was just very shy and reserved and he was taking it all in, um, but he wasn't judging. Um, he was there to support and he was there to make us look good, make him look good. And I learned so much about the practice of law that year, about how to advocate before a judge. Um, what arguments to make and how to make them. But more importantly, I learned a lot about humility and modesty and how to be a good mentor to younger people um, because he's one of those people that never forgets the people who help him um, and helps them later in life. So it was a really amazing experience, not just from a legal perspective, but from a professional development perspective. Mm. Well, that, that's amazing. Do you all stay in touch still? Absolutely. He has uh, reunions every now and then, so we get together as clerks, as a group. And then Mrs. Alito is just an incredibly wonderful, warm um, human being, so I see her pretty regularly, and every now and then we include him when he's feeling social. <laughs> That's great to hear. Now, so then after your Ogletree period, you had a role in Nikki Haley's administration in South Carolina. Tell us about that. So that was uh, very overwhelming. I went from a situation where I was a lawyer, a, a shareholder in a firm with hundreds of peers, to being the head of an agency. And when I walked into that agency, it was frankly a mess. Um, in fact, some of the last words that someone in the governor's office said to me when I started was, well, you can't make it any worse, so we'll see what happens. Vote <laughs> of confidence, huh? Yes, exactly. Um, it was a situation, they were a billion dollars in debt to the federal government. Uh, they were paying out more overpayments and fraudulent payments than they were recovering. Um, and they were just the, the living child for the General Assembly, the business community, uh, anybody you could think of, the media. And it was just a really rough situation to walk into. And immediately I tried to dig in to think about how can we make process improvements? How are we going to recover that money that went out the door? How do we stop more overpayments going in? How do we fix the place. And within a few months, what I realized what really needed to happen first was we needed a cultural change. We needed people to start believing in themselves first. We needed them to think about things differently. And we embarked on a, a really extensive uh, employee engagement campaign that included our HR department, our communications department, and a couple of our key operations leaders. Um, we informally uh, dubbed it the see it, own it, work it, do it. Uh, and we walked around and talked a lot to people about overcoming apathy by talking to them about if you see a problem 
own it, don't let it go, go away, start to work it, whether you can find a way to fix it or you can find someone to talk to and just work it, get it done, um, do it. And um, it was a little play on the words, Department of Employment and Workforce, where the, the nickname was Do. Uh, so we, we used that in the Do It. But it was really an, an amazing experience to watch an entire um, agency of about 700 employees slowly over time start to embrace change, start to embrace process improvement, start to believe in themselves um, as individuals and agencies. And by the time I left, uh, we were a, a billion dollars in, in the black. Um, we had cut taxes for business community six years in a row. But more importantly, we became the place that people came to get a job, not just to get unemployment insurance. And it was really a fun um, journey to go through with some really, really amazing people. How inspiring. Very yeah, it sounds inspiring. like a great, uh, I don't think a great journey. Uh, you maybe other than the trademark infringement issues with Mountain Dew, did you face any of those with that? Nobody ever accused us of that. <laughs> All right. So then you go from that role to being nominated for the wage and hour administrator at the Department of Labor, which is a very important role for the employer community, right? I think so. People seem to tell me that. So, Cheryl, let me just say this to you. We're not all practicing employment lawyers. So what exactly is a wage and hour administrator? It is the head of the wage and hour division. Um, it's a Senate-confirmed position that in many other departments or agencies would be called an assistant secretary. Uh, the agency has about 1,500 employees, and its primary mission is to enforce roughly 15 federal labor laws the ones that people think of every day, like the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Family Medical Leave Act, certain government contracts acts, certain uh, responsibilities that employers have under the uh, Immigration Naturalization Act with respect to certain work visas. Uh, so a whole array of different types of statutes that are, they are required to enforce, including the uh, nursing mother's uh, responsibilities that employers have and the Polygraph Act. I mean, it sounds like a really important job, but the title sounds like someone responsible for paying people at a clock factory. <laughs> I, I realize that. I think it has something to do with the fact that the statute was written in the 1940s, uh, and the administrator was there to administer the Fair Labor Standards Act, and so the administrator t title stuck. That's a, that's a long title that's to get on a nameplate, right? I mean, I don't know how you put it all on there. So overtime would be something that would fit under the wage in our administrator. What did you do with respect to that? So overtime is always an interesting issue. Uh, we all know that you are responsible as an employer if you have an employee who is not exempt from the overtime laws, that if they work more than 40 hours in a week, you need to pay them time and a half for the amount owed in a week. But there's a lot of questions employers face about is this individual exempt or is this individual not exempt from the overtime requirements? And so early on in the 40s, the wage and hour division decided, you know what, there is a salary level, a standard salary level, that if it's so low, there is no way you are exempt from overtime if you were making less than that amount of money. And over the years, we have seen the wage and hour division increase that number of what is the threshold that below which you are automatically entitled to overtime. Well, in the early 2000s, uh, 2003 to be exact, the overtime standard salary level, as it's called, 
was raised, and it was done based on the 20th percentile of the Southern Salaried and Retailed Salary Census. But then what happened was nobody touched that level for years. And it got to be about 2015 or 2016, and during the previous, previous administration, the President Obama administration, they raised the standard salary level to the 40th percentile of uh, salaried workers in the US. And that about doubled the standard salary level and brought in hundreds of thousands, millions of people that had not been required to be paid overtime to before. Um, this was a jolt to the system, as many of us know. I was running a state agency in the South where a number of people fell between those two numbers. And we had probably about 25% of our agency that we had to go through line by line to figure out, okay, do we raise them to this new standard salary level or do we change their duties? What do we do because we had to adjust? As you know, there was a lawsuit. Uh, the business community won down in Texas and there was a stay put in place for the overtime rule. Well, when the new administration came in, the first couple of years, they did some fact-finding. They did things like a request for information to ask the business community what they thought, and the regulated community as a whole, what they thought the standard salary level should be. They held a number of forums across the country where they listened to people and, and, and asked, where sh what should we do with this? But then we ended up issuing a notice of proposed rulemaking, proposing the standard salary level be raised to what was, in 2019 terms, the 20th percentile of, southern re of, of retail salaried and southern salaried employees. And during my tenure, what we did was we finalized that rule. Um, we brought more overtime to an additional 1.3 million Americans. And we kind of set in stone a little bit more what the methodology would be going forward to set the standard salary level. So it was a, a labor of love. We went through 117,000 comments between the notice of proposed rulemaking stage and the final stage, um, but we ended up with a rule that has not been challenged in court, that has become final, and has brought more over time to millions of Americans. Wow. Wow. Well, independent contractors have been in the news a lot lately as well. Do, do you all take some action there? Absolutely. So the issue of whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor goes under the Fair Labor Standards Act, goes back to the 1940s, and there was a 1947 decision by the Supreme Court in a case by, called Rutherford Foods, where they analyzed whether an individual was an independent contractor or an employee. In the 80 plus years, or nearly 80 years since that, has ha since that decision came down, people were relying on a number of different court decisions, a patchwork of analyses, different factors, different tests, to determine whether under the Fair Labor Standards Act someone was an independent contractor or not. In the President Obama administration, they even kind of tested whether or not people were employees or independent contractors by using enforcement. But never in the wage and hour division's history had they sat down and written a rule that said to the regulated community, here are the factors that we look at as an agency. Here is how we interpret the case law that has come out the, the guidance we have been given by statute, the guidance we have been given by the courts, and this is how we determine who is an employee and an independent contractor. So we again engaged in a rulemaking process. Uh, we had a notice of propo proposed rulemaking go out in 2020, and we received 
thousands and thousands of comments. But amazingly, we, we received thousands of comments from individuals who self-identified as freelancers or independent contractors. And an overwhelming margin of them, a margin of 20 to 1, were in favor of the proposed rulemaking that we put out. And one of the things that I found fascinating by that process is, normally when you see individuals send in comments on a rulemaking, they have been told by an association or a union or a worker group, here's a card, fill it out and sign your name. And it all says the exact same thing. During this process, we received comments from individuals that told their own story in their own voice. We heard from immigrants, we heard from the disabled, we heard overwhelmingly from working mothers, all of whom said that, that being independent contractors and having the flexibility to set their own hours and their own work schedules really enabled them to make money, otherwise they would be left behind in our economy because they couldn't do a traditional nine to five or structured work environment. So at the end of the year, we finalized an independent contractor rule, um, which was the first time it was ever done in wage and hour history. You know, Cheryl, um, as I was listening to you talk about overtime, independent contractors, big issues, probably impacts everybody um, in the audience here today. Are there some other maybe lesser known issues that flew a little bit under the radar that, that you might tell us a little bit about? Sure. Well, one that I think everybody knew about was the paid leave laws. Uh, for the first time in uh, history, uh, the, the Congress passed a federal paid sick leave law for employers with less than 500 employees. Um, it was very interesting because this all obviously came about last spring when we were all dealing with COVID crises. We at the, the agency were trying to deal with who in our own agency should we have telework who did we need to get extra support to, who may have been exposed to, who may have been sick. And in the middle of it, I'll never forget, on March 10th, I sent an email to the chief of staff to the department and I said, do I need to worry about this paid sick leave proposal up on the hill? Is this something we're gonna have to do? And she said, no, I still have this email, no. Every proposal I've seen either runs it through the unemployment insurance program or the social security administration. It does not look like it's going to wage an hour. Well, we all know that eight days later, President Trump signed into law the Families First Coronavirus Response Act and put the responsibility of standing up and enforcing paid sick leave firmly in wage and hours lap. And so that was a major um, overtaking that we did in 2020. But at that same time, what happened was many of you may have heard of USMCA, the United States-Mexican-Canada agreement that is a new trade agreement amongst the three countries. What you might not realize is for the first time, Wage and Hour has a responsibility of enforcing parts of the trade agreement. And that is there's an aspect of it that requires that 45% of all workers directly involved in the production of cars be paid on average $16 an hour. It's called the labor value content of the agreement. And we at Wage and Hour had to, to enact a rule that stood up how we would enforce the labor value content requirement. And so part of that is first taking in certifications. We stood up a certification program in the fall. Those certifications are being processed now. And next will come the verification or the enforcement stage where we go and actually make sure that workers are being paid at that level at that percentage. So that is something that the auto, your automotive clients will know a lot about and was a very important part of the wage and hour division. 
but we also tackled things like regular rate, the fluctuating work week, joint employment, which we didn't talk about here today, and numerous other policy uh, initiatives that, that impact employers every day. Well, we have to save a little bit of stuff to talk about at Workplace Strategies, right? So we're going to have to save some of those topics perhaps for, for down, the, down the road when you will be joining us in Austin. Now, Cheryl, I know that you are very proud of the record of enforcement uh, while Wage and Hour was under your leadership. And, and that's not something that one might normally associate with a Republican appointee. So how did that become a priority for you? So first of all, I started in South Carolina where we spent five and a half years working with individuals who uh, were really at their wit's end finding jobs. And a lot of people that we were helping find jobs were people who were entrants into the workplace, who were being paid at that minimum wage and who were very vulnerable workers. So when I got to the agency, it was an, a natural extension that it was important to me that all those people we had spent all that time helping find jobs be treated right in the workplace when they got there. And so it, it was important to me that we really focus on the enforcement and that we were doing our enforcement well and taking care of those people who didn't have other outlets, who might not be able to find lawyers to help them or, or not comfortable complaining within the workplace. But when I got there, two of our career staff and my political chief of staff came to me and said, Cheryl, we have a problem. We're on a record for a 17-year low in enforcement recoveries. And I said, well, how can that be? We were six months into the fiscal year. And they showed me a whole series of data projections of what we were going to do. And they said, right now, it looks like we're going to cover about $250, $260 million for workers. I said, well, that, that doesn't seem right. That can't be right. So we started digging into our case files and started digging into the data and started digging into what our investigators were doing. And we found things like investigators were spending too much time on the phones and not enough time in the field because we hadn't given them the support they needed. We found that we had a great tradition in Wage and Hour of promoting our investigators to management or technical roles and we weren't backfilling them. So I asked, well, what happened to their cases? And we ran a report and found 757 cases that had just been abandoned when investigators had moved on. I mean, those were workers who were waiting to find out if they were going to get their money who were left in limbo. We looked at a, a number of things in terms of timing, how long it was taking us to close cases, how we were closing cases once we found money was owed, what were we doing to collect, put the money in the, in the, the workers back, uh, back in their pockets, Closing those case, collecting that money, closing those cases, and moving on. And by the end of the fiscal year, we had turned the ship around and had ended up recovering a record $322 million for workers in fiscal year 20. So um, it was an important year, but it wasn't, it is interesting you raised that. Um, Tammy McCutcheon, who was an administrator in the Wage and Hour Division in the early 2000s, did a study. And on average, Republicans recover more money. Uh, in enforcement than do Democrats. And we can talk more about that at Workplace Strategies. Yeah, that's interesting. Certainly not yeah, what one might expect. So um, Cheryl, I, I know your time is precious. Uh, so one final question for you. If you were serving as the employment counselor uh, to the employers in our audience, what would you tell them to help them stay out of trouble with the Department of Labor? Sure, I, I think there's a lot of things people don't realize under the Fair Labor Standards Act. They think that the thing they need to do is pay minimum wage and overtime if someone works more than 40 hours and is not exempt. 
But there's lots of technical aspects to the Fair Labor Standards Act that people don't understand. For instance, the perks you provide them at work, they, the cost of those or the, the value of those may have to be rolled into the regular rate which is the amount of money that you pay time and a half for if someone works over 40 hours. There are tons of technical aspects like that that I think it is really important that you talk to your counselors at, at law firms like this. Uh, if you have specific questions, you can always reach out to the Wage and Hour Division. Every office has a community outreach resource planning specialist that is just there for outreach. But the other thing that I think uh, it's good for employers to do is what they're doing here, and that is to receive updates and to go through updates and to participate in conferences like the conferences you do, because during those conferences, you guys are going to raise the different intricacies of these laws that people might not be expecting and update them on the different changes that happen in a new administration. So I think what the people in the audience are doing right now is one of the best ways they can do to make sure that they're thinking through where they may have vulnerabilities in how they pay their workers. Great pitch for the program. Great pitch for the program. I do have one final question. Okay. How are your folks? They're fantastic, thank you. They are in Beaufort, South Carolina, as many people know. Fully retired, and yet they have more uh, active social uh, calendars than my sister or I. And every morning we do get a text message from my father letting us know how warm it is <laughs> as opposed to the icy snowstorms we've been having here in Washington, D.C. That sounds like your dad. Tell yeah. him I said hi. Yeah, Cheryl's dad, Pat, <laughs> was also uh, a shareholder That's at right. uh, Ogletree for, for many, many, many years. And many years. both of our relationships go way back with, uh, with him. Well, whether you join us in person in Austin or participate uh, virtually, Cheryl and Dennis and I are going to have much more on this particular topic for you uh, on June 23rd through the 25th. Cheryl, thank you so much uh, for taking time from your schedule to be with us here today, and I do look forward to seeing you for Workplace Strategies 2021. Wow, that was really great to hear from Cheryl Stanley. It was. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Do you now know what the Wage and Hour Administrator does? I have a better idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll continue to educate you as we go along throughout this uh, podcast. But you know, we said that there were four principles that we were gonna try to meet as part of this program. And those were? Substance. Swag. Wine. And competition. Hmm. So um, we definitely had the substance this time. Yes, we did. Uh, I didn't see much swag. Not much swag, although I, I have the Ogletree pen again. And you're gonna ask about the car. Now I'm still working on the car. All right, fair I'm enough. still working on, on the car. Fair but, I do think that we could uh, maybe hit the wine a little bit. All right, I mean, fair it's enough. It's kind of a nice way to, to end the program. And, and this is a segment I like to call, What Are You Drinking? Oh. What are you drinking this week? And we'll, we'll come back at the end of the week, and we'll talk about our thoughts on each one of these wines. So do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay. So, uh, Joe, between now and next week, I'm going to drink a bottle of Cabernet. Uh, it's from the Gurgich Hills Estate, which was founded in 1977 by Mike Gurgich. And we had the pleasure of visiting there a couple different times and yeah. uh, having dinner and taking a tour. And uh, I really enjoyed this wine. We took our Napa program, the California Employment we Law. Did. Yeah, we program. did. Went there one term. And you know, Mike, Mike Gurgich actually um, started his career at Chateau Montalena, which- I did not know that. Yes, he was the winemaker that uh, was one of the folks who won the, the, the awards from Paris in 1976. It really put Napa on the, 
So that is a wonderful wine. You're going to really, I think, enjoy that. I, sure. I have one here that I that I um, really haven't had before, okay. and, but it's from Raymond Estates, and you know Raymond. I know Raymond. Been to Raymond, it's kind of an interesting visit. Everybody loves Raymond. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's if you get a chance to visit Raymond, it's a it's a unique wild property. It's a unique property. I'm wilds maybe overstating it a little bit, but uh, but it is unique. And so this is a, a new a, a blend I haven't had before. That's called one and a half acres. So as opposed to the 100% cab that. Uh, Dennis had. This is a classic Bordeaux blend. So mm. that means it has five different grapes mm. that are mixed into um, to this particular wine. So I am really looking forward to trying this one and a half acres. And it's got this very cool label on it. Here. Can't wait to hear our yeah. goes. And then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, that next week. And we'll have some competition next week. Absolutely we will. Well, until then, I'm Joe Beachboard. And I'm Dr. Dennis Davis. And this has been Workplace Strategies Update.